0: Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best in life are free, but you can give them to the, best and be
1: the From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, senior analysts Andy Cross and Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. How you doing, Chris? Hey, Chris. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. Best selling author Dan Ariely is our guest. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar but we begin with the rising, and not the song by Bruce Springsteen. This week saw rising volatility as well as the continued rise of 10-year Treasury yields, and the two combined to make it a rough ride for some investors, especially, Andy, when you consider the Nasdaq at one point this week was down 5%.
2: Yes, and especially for if you're a new investor who's just joined the market, as so many have, we've had millions of new investors come into the market, which generally, generally, I think is a really good thing, good, healthy, as long as they have the right perspective and the right mindset to to be an investor. Unfortunately, I'm afraid many don't, so that's why we're here trying to help people understand that markets are volatile; they can be. What we saw this this week with stocks moving five, ten percent in a given day for at the stock level, especially for some of the growth stocks that have performed so well, Chris over the last year. I mean, the S&P itself is up uh, more than 70%, and so many of the great growth stocks are up multiple times of that. Um, it's having these um, breathers where stocks um, get sold off and the price falls 5 or 10% um, for whatever reason. And it could be earnings, it could be uh, macro conditions, it could be political conditions. You have that in the markets, and it's very important that if you are investing in stocks that you take that 3 to 5 year perspective because if you not if you don't your chance of getting spooked out of a great company because of the of the near term volatility can be very real and you have to be careful about that
0: Things were, were a bit frothy. Uh, we, we've had a good run, uh, especially in the NASDAQ and with technology stocks, with, with growth stocks. Um, and that's wonderful. And, you know, it's also fine that we take a step back period, periodically. And it's not something to panic over. It's actually healthy. Um, things can't go up all, all the time, um, it's just not possible. So things stagnate sometimes. Uh, when I say things, stocks return stagnate sometimes. Sometimes they go down and correct. You want to make sure if your particular stocks are selling off rather significantly that there's nothing wrong with the company, that it's just a general market uh, malaise, if you will, um, and time to take a step back. As interest rates rise, other financial assets become more attractive relative to stocks, and that causes outflows as well. But again, as Andy said, we're long-term investors. You make sure your companies are rock-solid, you're happy with owning companies, not markets, and I think everybody's going to be fine.
2: And remember, the prices are maybe just back to where they were like a month ago. or right. So, it, it, that's just what happens. You have to really understand that and have that right, healthy, long-term perspective.
1: All right, let's get to some earnings. Shares of Airbnb up 12% on Friday after coming out of the gate strong. It was Airbnb's first earnings report as a public company, and revenue was higher than expected. And sure, Andy, they lost nearly $4 billion in the span of 90 days, <laughs> but come on, this is a growth company. Let's focus on the top line here.
2: What's $4 billion among friends? Hey, listen, Chris, it, it was a roller coaster ride for Airbnb over the last 12 months. Its valuation got as low as $18 billion by some valuation. Um, estimates and some reports before it went public, and now it's at 108 billion. Um, it just got crushed during the quarantine. They had to lay off the staff. They had to really reposition their 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 website. Really think about how they are how they are selling their their um, services and how they are targeting audiences and what kind of hosts they are recruiting. And and they have really climbed out of this um, of a very tough pandemic situation. While revenues in the fourth quarter were down 22% at 859 million adjusted. EBITDA was negative at 21 million, um, but that was 250 million better than in the fourth quarter of 2019. Chris, when revenues were 250 million dollars higher, so they've really managed the cost structure. The nights and experiences were down 39 percent in the fourth quarter. Gross bookings down 30 percent in the fourth quarter. Um, so I guess the only bright side it was the average daily rate was up 13 percent in the fourth quarter. So what they can what they charge versus the the average nights that they that they book. So overall, when you look at the quarter for Airbnb, it was a slow step of progress that we saw from the lows of April as they really have cut costs, repositioned, tried to reposition their marketing. Um, A fun fact uh, that they talked about is that in the fourth quarter, more people stayed in Sicily than stayed in Florence and Venice combined. And what that tells us, and what they how they positioned their business, was to start to focus less on the cities and much more on the rural opportunities to be able to. To, to attract people who want to just drive as opposed to fly.
0: Andy, I'm sure they, they talked about the vaccine opening things up and how that will obviously improve the business, but that would also improve the hotel business at the same time. So, did they did they have any discussion about, um, you know, once everything opens up, competition is going to kind of be pre-COVID levels and, and where they stand with respect yeah. to that?
2: Well, Ron yeah, they expect their revenue their, their, their revenue drop, their fall to in, in, in the first quarter to be, to be lower than what it was in the fourth quarter. So again, continuing to make progress. and I think they do expect that competition to keep kick. Kick, kick back up as people start to, to explore different options and where they want to travel, that's why they continue. They're going to spend a lot in marketing in Q1 and Q2 that will hit the profitability even further as they start to attract more and more people for the summer holiday season. But um, I really do applaud their, their team for, for making that transition in a really very tough spot when people were wondering, wow, they were burning a lot of money last summer. And there was a lot of questions about what the future is for Airbnb. And right now, it's looking a lot brighter than it was a year ago.
1: Home improvement might be slowing down. Lowe's and Home Depot's fourth quarter reports featured higher than expected profits, but shares at both companies down this week on lowered expectations for 2021. Ron, Home Depot down 7%, Lowe's down 10%. Do those moves make sense to you?
0: You know, they're both similar stories. And if you're looking at the stocks, performance to gauge how the quarter was, I think you're doing a disservice. And if you're looking at the stock's performance to think about the future of the company, I think you're also doing yourself a disservice, because there are some real strengths here. And we can go through some of the numbers. Let's take Home Depot, for example, first. Sales up 25%, comp sales up 25% as well. If we remove uh, the impact of the HD supply acquisition that they brought back into the fold, adjusted earnings were up 20%. Specific to Home Depot, investors were focused on the future guidance, and, and that's typically, you know, the markets are forward-looking. Investors are forward-looking, um, and management said they're limited in their ability to forecast demand for fiscal 2021. I guess that's not surprising. It's hard to um, understand what's going to happen in a post-COVID, a post-vaccine world. But they said if the demand environment during the back half of fiscal 2020 were to persist, it would imply flat to slightly positive comp sales growth, and. Slightly positive comp sales growth is exciting to no one but again that's just in the very near term it doesn't it doesn't impact my opinion of Home Depot as a strong business and they they increase their dividend ten percent I think to send some signals that we're a strong company the two point six percent yield is nothing nothing at all to sneeze at that's a nice yield for a company like Home Depot lowe's similar story sales up twenty seven percent comp sales up twenty nine percent. Management was a little bit more forthcoming, though. With guidance, they said they expect to grow market share and drive further operating margin expansion. They're planning a nine billion dollars share repurchase program, um, so things are a little bit uh, more clear there. But they're clearly in, in the in the same in the same boat from a stock perspective. It's the same old story. Uh, Lowe's a little bit cheaper on up on a relative PE basis than Home Depot, um, but they're both fine companies. I don't think you
1: need to choose between the two of them. It's fine to I think. On either or both. Square's fourth quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected, but shares of Square down nearly 20% this week because the growth is slowing down. And Andy, I get the slowing growth, but this really seems like a nice buying opportunity for anyone who has Square on their watch list.
2: I, Chris I would agree with that there are two really um, I think um, important announcements or announcements and facts that got the most attention and that is one that they are further they're investing into Bitcoin and supporting Bitcoin and also their cash app continues to kill it so they announced another 170 million purchase of about 3300 bitcoins on top of the 50 million that they bought in q4 um, that's now about five percent of the cash on on Square's balance sheet, so um, three million Cash App customers purchased or sold Bitcoin in 2020, and one million Cash App customers purchased or sold Bitcoin in just tw- January 2021. So Jack Dorsey, said the founder and CEO of, of Square, said we believe that internet needs a native currency. We believe Bitcoin is it, so they continue to make this investment in Bitcoin. But their cash app, Chris, which is the peer-to-peer money sharing um, app and platform, now has 36 million monthly active users. That's up 50 percent from last year. The app, the cash app ecosystem, generated gross profits in the fourth quarter of 377 million. That was up 162 percent. Gross profit per monthly transaction of active customers on the Cash App platform was up 70% to $41. So, really building out the Cash App ecosystem. And if you think and you believe that the digital um, money system is evolving and changing, and you look at a, a company like Square that is building this Cash App ecosystem along with their other businesses, looking ahead, they continue to double down on the commitment to Bitcoin, looking at their Their profitability, looking to be able to to gain more and more members and grow those uh, members and grow those transactions, you got to say this um, opportunity to buy Square at a cheaper price is pretty attractive.
1: Coming up, I hate to be the one to say this out loud, but Americans might have to start eating more pizza. (laughs) Details after the break, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Andy Cross and Ron Gross. Shares of Etsy rose more than 10% on Friday after a monster fourth quarter report. Profits and revenue were higher than expected and new buyers, Andy. I mean, Etsy's been around since 2005, but 2020 really seems like it's the year that tens of millions of people shopped on Etsy for the first time.
2: Chris, you're right. Uh, CEO Josh Silverman called it a transformative year um, with gross merchandise sales. So all the, all the, the value of all everything Etsy sells across its platform and revenues more than doubling um, to levels that they targeted in 2023. Basically did what they expected in 2023. They did in 2020. Etsy grew two and a half times as fa- faster than the e-commerce growth, which as we know was all very attractive. So it now is 85 million items for sale. Active sellers were upset. in the year. Gross merchandise sales per seller during the year was up 22%. Active buyers just in the fourth quarter, Chris, was up 77% to 81 million, uh, with 6.5 million as habitual buyers, which means they buy more than once. Um, 73% of customer contacts in the fourth quarter, Chris, were through voice or chat, and that was up from 22% just a couple years ago. So not only are they attracting more buyers, but they are spending a lot more attention to to those buyers and the sellers. So when you look at the gross merchandise sales up more than 118%, the revenue up 129%, driven mostly by their marketplace revenue, which is up 150%. And that's listing fees, transaction fees, payments across the platform. You got to say, looking at the holiday season, Etsy has really built a marketplace that, for getting masks, as masks was a big part of their business, they are much beyond masks. They have massive reach, and they have they are reaching more and more buyers and sellers to help entrepreneurs out there connect.
1: Papa John's and Domino's, both out with fourth quarter reports, both put up strong same-store sales numbers, yet shares of both Papa John's and Domino's down around 10% this week. Ron, what is going on? <laughs> I think in a COVID-related world, people were just expecting to see just bigger
0: numbers than they put up. And it's not like the numbers were bad. They just didn't meet uh investors expectations we can take dominoes first global retail sales up 12% uh, excluding the benefit from a 53rd week if you include that it, it's a little bit misleading US same store sales growth up 11% international up 7% this was the this was the 108th consecutive quarter of international same store sales growth and the 39th consecutive quarter of US same store sales growth so they continue to put up impressive numbers the stock has been unbelievable um, over the longer term uh, they added uh, net 388 stores in the fourth quarter 624 for fiscal 2020 earnings up about ten and a half percent new repurchase program authorized a twenty percent increase in the dividend yield uh, you get a 1.1 percent yield now at that level so th- things are great they're just a little bit lower than folks expected they put a new two to th- uh, two to three year outlook in there which includes six to ten percent global retail sales growth and the same for Papa John's um, although Papa John's has had its own problems self-imposed over the last year Year or two uh, with the new CEO taking the reins uh, in August of 2019. But for them, total revenue up 12.5%, adjusted earnings uh, were up 40, per, were 40 cents per share versus a loss this time last year. So they've kind of turned things around too. But these things need to take a, a breather, um, and they sold off a bit um, because investors just wanted more
1: growth. Beyond Meat reported a loss in the fourth quarter that was bigger than Wall Street was expecting, but that news was overshadowed by Beyond Meat's announcement of a three-year deal to be the preferred supplier for McDonald's plant-based burger. And Andy, uh, they also struck a deal with Taco Bell.
2: Yeah, they make plant for uh, McDonald's, a new plant based burger being tested in um, in select markets globally, um, and uh, also will probably um, help produce and develop um, other plant based kind of foods, like maybe for chicken, pork, and egg. And as you mentioned, the other one with Young Brands, too. So that really kind of trumped what was kind of a meh quarter, Chris, with sales up 3.5%, driven almost all by the retail sales, um, which is uh, was up 85%. The food service sales so the commercial sales was down 54 percent so that those continued to move in the opposite direction as they have been for most of the past a year um, they had an increase of seven percent on the volume side and they that was offset by a price per, lower price per pound so retail sales doing well service sales doing poorly but they continue to invest back very heavily in this business operating expenses were up 45 percent that means the operating expenses as a percent of revenue was at 50 percent this quarter versus 35 percent Last quarter, so they're spending on headcount, marketing, IT, um, international expansion. That's really hurting the bottom line and 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 their cash flow, Chris. So that's something to watch with Beyond Meat. But overall, you know, um, nine billion dollar company playing in a massive market in a differentiating way, and that's kind of getting more attractive as the stock gets the valuation gets a little bit more normal here.
1: Shares of DoorDash falling sixteen percent on Friday after the company's first earnings report as a public company. Revenue was higher than expected, but DoorDash lost hundreds of millions of dollars. Ron, shouldn't a business like this be doing well at a time when food delivery is higher than normal? <laughs> They're doing well, but it's an
0: expensive business to run, um, and they just haven't reached the level yet um, that they expect to see that 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 path to profitability that uh, relatively early stage companies like to talk about. A little context: the IPO uh, in December was priced at 102. It went up around 80 percent in the first. if you recall, we're somewhere in the high 150s uh, today. And as you said, first quarterly report as a public company, it was mixed. Results were solid, guidance was soft. Revenue up 220%, total orders up 230%. Obviously, COVID is the main driver there. Reported a loss of, as you said, of several hundred million, $312 million for the quarter. Um, That was bigger than last year's loss of $134 million. So, uh, increased expenses, um, lower profit. There, they did have adjusted EBITDA that was positive, so cash flow was positive at 94 million. So that's that's one bright spot. Um, The guidance expects fewer customer orders, reduced order frequency, smaller average orders in the back half of the year as the vaccine rolls out and allows people to get back to restaurants. Again, I don't think we should be surprised about that. There was some artificial uh, growth here built in because we were all stuck at home. It doesn't mean that DoorDash uh, isn't relevant and doesn't have a, a, a business model that will make sense in the future, but it's going to go back to what a more normal business looks like for them.
1: But unlike the similar percentage drop that we saw with Square, this doesn't scream buying opportunity to me, does it to you? I, I
0: like my company's profitable, quite frankly, <laughs> or at least at least getting close. $300 million uh, loss is a bit high for me, so I'm going to keep an eye. Well, you're old-fashioned like that. Yeah, well, yeah, All right, me.
1: Ryan Gross, Andy Cross. Guys, we will see you later in the show. Up next, Dan Ariely has an idea how investors can keep calm in a volatile market. You're going to want to hear it, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Full Money. You get a fast car. I want a ticket to anywhere. Maybe we make a deal. Maybe together we can get somewhere. Any place is better.
3: Starting from zero, got nothing to lose. Maybe we'll make
1: a Welcome back to Motley Full Money. I'm Chris Hill. Dan Ariely is the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University. He's a founding member of the Center for Advanced Hindsight, and he's the author of several best selling books, including Predictably Irrational and The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. And if that's not enough, he's also the Chief Behavior Officer at Lemonade. Earlier this week, I got the chance to catch up with Dan. Here's part of that conversation. You and I were chatting before we started this interview. There are a lot of people who started investing just in the past year, um, even in less than a year. I feel for them. <laughs> I feel for them. The, the people who started investing at the bottom last spring. Yeah, it's been a rough ride for them. Terrible. That's just no, no. I'm serious. You know, you can say, oh, you know, they've made so much
3: money, but no, I'm really seriously uh, sad for them. But
1: this goes to my question because um, it goes to the idea of risk, which is something I know you have studied. Because um, when people start investing, a lot of times they are, particularly if they're working with a financial advisor, they're, you know, they uh, try to get a risk profile for this person, and they get, you know, they ask questions like, "How would you feel if your portfolio fell twenty-five percent?" And that's a genuinely important thing to try and understand. But it seems like a very imperfect way to get that answer. So, what, what is a better way for people to think about risk?
3: OK. So, first of all, I hate these risk surveys. I think they are stupid and misleading, and uh, they're cheap, and they, uh, uh, nobody should be using them. I think it's regulatory required for some uh, ridiculous reasons, but I think it's irresponsible. And I can, I can tell you many reasons why they're irresponsible. But I'll, I'll just give you two, maybe three. The first one is that when we do risk surveys of this type, and we show people three portfolios low risk, middle risk, high risk, people choose the middle. Great. Now imagine that what we do is we take the high risk out and we add the lower risk in. So now we have. Low, middle, and high, but 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 we just shifted them. They're all lower risk. What happens? People
1: choose the middle. Choose the middle.
3: Even, so, so it turns out if if you give me risk profiles, I can get people to generate lots of different things. It's a meaningless answer. That's that's the first thing. The second thing, which is more serious, people don't take risk with money. At the end of the day, people take risk with their consumption of life. So I can ask you, you know, how would you feel if you lost 20% of your stuff? But, but the reality is that money is means to an end. I need to ask you, how would you feel if your kids can't go to wherever you want them to go? And how would you feel if you had to downgrade your house? I mean, these are the real questions. And it turns out that there's nothing to connect those two. You ask people about the risk in life, and they tell you a very different answer. You ask them about the risk about money, they tell you how they would feel. But, but you know, financial advisors are supposed to be like doctors. They're supposed to know something. So that's, that's my third thing. Imagine I was your financial advisor. And I said, hey, Chris, how do you feel about risk? And you say, oh, you know, I really hate risk. I don't sleep well at night and so on. What should I do? Should I tell you, so why don't you be poor for life? <laughs> no. If I was your doctor and you came to me and say, hey, Chris, how do you feel about pain? And you say, oh, really, I hate pain. I would say, you know what? So I'll do this this, uh, treatment for you with full anesthesia. Or I'll give you value, I'll give you a painkiller. I don't say, oh, so just live with pain. I'm not treating you. So if I was your financial advisor and you came to me and you said you hate risk, I would say, don't look at your portfolio. Take value, study meditation. It's unclear to me that because we feel about risk differently, people should be condemned to being poor. In fact, if somebody is an expert on risk, they should should tell you what risk you should be taking. Risk is not about the feeling. Risk should be an outcome variable, not an input variable. That's, That's the last thing I would say about this. If I was your financial advisors, advisor, I would say, what are you trying to achieve in life? And you would say, oh, I want to retire in Florida and I want a boat and I want this. And I would calculate for you how much money you need. And uh, your risk will be an output of how you want to live. In, in what world would we take money and say, instead of optimizing your future life, we're going to optimize your feelings at the moment. <laughs> anyway, it's when you think about it, it's a crazy thing. It's a crazy thing that we got to that terrible, terrible system.
1: So let's go back to something we touched on earlier, which is the um, the people who started investing last spring, who have known in their short investing life nothing but success in general. How should people? set their expectations, because if you've only been investing since last spring, there's a good chance you have outsized expectations for what your investing outcomes will be.
3: The worst thing that can happen to somebody who goes to Las Vegas is to win the first time. Uh, There's lots of experiments in human psychology about how our first experience really defines us. Uh, if you're a, a little duck the first thing that you see moving you figure it's your mother and you follow that if you take initially a risk and it worked out you become addicted to that risk uh, the people who started investing and you know for the last year or 11 months had nothing but success have basically created with it the expectation that things would always increase. It will be incredibly hard for them when reality settles. Like imagine somebody, like if somebody is 70, not so bad, but if somebody is 20 and, and this is going to be with them for the rest of their life, they will remember that their first year of investing and the odds that they'll be have another year like this is very, very low. This is really setting them up for, uh, for expectation. Now, I really don't want people to, to lose a lot of money. So it's not that I, I think that they. You know, I'm, wishing, I'm wishing things that are bad for them. But the, what people need to do is they need to realize that investing has a huge component of luck. And that, yes, things were lucky. And it was not that they were smart, it was not the world is like this. So, um, you know, you could, you could play with yourself and you could say, what, what would happen if I invested the same thing in the beginning of 2007, right? What, what would have happened to, to my money? Get, get some other prospects saying, okay, I just happened to be born uh, in 2000. And, and I started investing in in, 2020. What would have happened if I was born 20 years earlier or 19 years? Like, what would have happened now? And I think people need to recognize that it's luck uh, and not skill. Because if people think that it's going to be skill, they're going to keep on chasing uh, uh, returns. And, And we all know that that's one of the most dangerous things is to think that you're smarter than the market and you can chase returns and it's about you. That's a recipe. It's a recipe, first of all, for unhappiness, because you keep on chasing something. And then the second thing, it's a recipe for a lot of financial losses.
1: We have just a few minutes left, so two questions before I let you go. First, um, when the inevitable decline comes, (laughs) um, what are a couple of things investors can do to um, diminish the odds they make rash decisions.
3: Yeah. So,
1: you know, one one of the
3: things that we know that people are better at is if we write a specific contract and we remind ourselves about that contract. So if you say to yourself, when things start going down, I will not sell anything within the week. Here's my cooling period. Um, and if you want to make it more powerful, get a friend to sign it as well. You want to make it uh, even more powerful, give them authorized signature on, on your account. But, but the point is that the way that emotions work is that emotions kidnap our brains. Fear, happy, both good and, and, and bad side. And you don't get deep cognitive thoughts and emotion at the same time. It just doesn't work. The moment emotion takes over, it takes over. And making decisions, you know, some decisions it's fine to make about emotions. Love, poetry, uh, not so much in the stock market. So, So what we need to do is we need to recognize that emotions flare up. They also die quicker than we think. And we need to create a cooling period so that we don't, Uh, let our emotional highs dictate our financial futures.
1: Last thing, and then I'll let you go. One of the economic ripple effects of the pandemic um, has shown up in a niche retail category, and that's board games. Sales of board games and card games are up dramatically uh, over the past year. Um, uh, I just learned, you have your own. Please just tell me about, and this is the official title Dan Ariely's Irrational Game.
3: So, what is the game? So, you know, in physics, if you think about physics, what you're trying to do is to predict the movement of an object, like eighth-rate physics. Here's a ball, it's running, like where would it stop? In social science, uh, it's the same. I give you a new situation. I say, hey, you meet three people, one of them is short, one of them is tall, Uh, uh, which one would you like more? Which one would people on average uh, like more? Um, And we describe a little experiment. And then we give people four answers. And the people who win are the people who understand human nature better. And on the other side, we tell you what the real answer is, and something about the implication uh, it means. So, So it's a game that is really designed to test our intuition about how people behave, and then teach us a little bit about that. I will say that uh, many people wrote me and said that they ended up using this game as a dinner conversation. They said the game is long, but what we do is we take one card and we, we discuss it and uh, we use it as a dinner conversation, not not in the way that
1: I intended it, but that's fine as well. That's probably just as well cuz I can't imagine um, your friends would want to play this game cuz it's got your name on it and like if we like if I went over to your house and you said hey let's play this game I would just assume it's rigged for you. Yeah. <laughs> it is rigged for me. I came up with it so so yes I know <laughs> the answers. Dan Ariely, always great talking to you. Thanks so much for taking the time to be here. Same here. Take care. Talk to you soon. You can find out more about Dan Ariely and his work by going to his website, danariely.com. Up next, Andy Cross and Ron Gross return with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here, you're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Andy Cross and Ron Gross. Our email address is radio@fool.com. Question from Micah in Canada who asks, what do you think of Chewy specifically when considering Amazon? Do you think there's room for both? Or does either stand out as the stronger pick for consumer pet needs? Obviously, Andy Chewy is all in on pets. Amazon does have a pet business, though.
2: Well, and Amazon has you know bazillion other. Businesses, so yes, you can opt, uh, definitely own both these businesses. Um, Chewy all is a forty billion dollar business, much smaller than than Amazon. Um, all in on pets, and the pet market is booming. Two thirds of, of Americans now own pets. It's growing like gangbusters. We care a lot about spending money in our pets, and importantly, Chewy has that auto ship. Seventy percent of their sales are really tied to recurring shipping, and that's just really powerful. So yes, I think you can own both of those because they are similar yet different. In businesses
0: yeah I think Amazon its strength is in its breadth of products they don't, they're not as good as as when there's a certain niche to focus on that's why I do like companies like chewy um, and also buyer beware on Amazon you're not always sure because it's a marketplace that you're getting the appropriate price so it requires you to do some research versus if you go to chewy I think you can be more sure
1: one more question this time from Wilson Lee Can you talk about what paths or actions one should most likely take in order to have a career doing what you do, whether it's to become an analyst or to research stocks or investment ideas for a firm or a fund or a subscription service? After eight years in the culinary industry, I'm in the middle of a career change and I'm starting school again. I'm curious if you have any suggestions. Ron, what do you think? I would say
0: read, learn, and repeat. Um, it's it's about increasing your knowledge of companies. Um, certainly, there's a certain amount of understanding of markets that you want to have, but really understanding companies and the way they make money, that does require some accounting and finance knowledge for sure. Um, but the more companies you look at, the more sectors you look at, the more comfortable you'll end up feeling um, about giving your opinions on, on companies, um, and you just got to keep doing it and doing it and doing it, and even after you know decades in the business, there's still more to learn always, but I think reading and learning is where you start.
1: Let's get to the stocks on our radar, and our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Andy Cross, you're up first. What are you looking at this week?
2: Dan, I'm going with CuriosityStream, an $800 million company that is specializing as a video streaming and on-demand platform of documentaries. It has 3,000 titles, including 1,000 original programs. They're headquartered just down the street from me here in Silver Spring, Maryland, founded by John Hendricks, who started Discovery Channel back in 1985. His goal with this company is to be a lifelong learning academy. He owns more than 40%. It has 13 million pages. Subscribers ranging from three dollars per month to ten dollars per month, or twenty per year to seventy per year, depending on your quality. It's available in one hundred and seventy-five countries. Sales are growing eighty to one hundred percent a year. Dan, it's a very new, young company, but I like
1: the prospects. Curiosity, C U R I. Dan, question about Curiosity Stream? Absolutely, Chris. <laughs> uh, Andy, would you say that Curiosity Stream has piqued your Curiosity.
2: Dan, it wouldn't be a radar stock if it did not pique my curiosity. So yes, it has. Hey, lots of different revenue streams available from this company from subscriptions to sponsorships and advertising. So it'll be very interesting to see what John Hendricks builds with Curiosity Stream.
1: Ron Gross, what are you looking at? I'm hoping I get an easy
0: question like that. I'm looking at ResMed, RMD, manufacturer of continuous positive airway pressure systems, CPAP systems, most of you are probably familiar with that term, and related accessories. They're the global leader in sleep-related breathing disorders. It's a razor, razor blade model, which is really nice. Strong margins, growth opportunities in adjacent markets for treating uh, COPD, asthma. Uh, They uh, acquired a cloud-based software company in 2016, which allows them to pursue the opportunity of linking home based patients to hospital systems. I think that's going to continue to be a nice growth area. Uh, 0.8% dividend yields, which is on the low side, but the stock has almost doubled over the last two years. And they've increased that dividend for the past eight consecutive years. So I think you have a nice total return potential here if the company continues to execute.
1: Dan, question about ResMed? Listen, Ron, I understand. <laughs> That CPAP machines are important and sleep apnea is a very dangerous thing. But I had to share a hotel room once with a guy with a CPAP machine. And I got two words for you. okay, never again.
0: But if you if that guy had snored instead of CPAP, you would be saying triple never again. I think from what my understanding is, CPAP is better than snoring.
1: But, you know, you do you. Dan, two very different businesses. You got a stock you want to add to your watch list? You know, Andy said that CuriosityStream uh, is growing, I think it's revenue by 80 or 100% Mm -hmm. in the last year or last uh, several years. And that that is extremely compelling, Chris. (laughs) So I think I'm going to go with CuriosityStream this week. Yeah, I, I don't know that sleep apnea is growing at that rate. So, yeah. Uh, you know,
2: Dan's also fun. a lifelong learner, so I can just I feel the curiosity with him.
1: There you go. Andy Cross, Ron Gross, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, thanks Chris. Thanks, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.